helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. This is DAU Podcast. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Mr. Steve Morani, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Really pleased to have you with me today. Now, as we continue our talks about the Joint Acquisition Task Force for Coronavirus, our attention turns today to another part of the story. And that piece is the strategic national stockpile and how we faced our need to replenish and restructure it to meet this challenge. Steve, let's start right in with how you became a part of this JADF or Joint Acquisition Task Force. What is the origin story here? Okay. So thanks for asking, uh, Anthony. So as with uh, other members of the, the task force, as coronavirus hit and we were continuing to work in our our assigned duties, I was the uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Material Readiness. Uh, I was part of the acquisition and sustainment uh, organization under uh, Honorable Lord, under Secretary of Defense for ANS. Really, I was just responding and and doing the work of of sustainment and making sure that our organic industrial base uh, was operating during during these conditions. And uh, one day, my boss, Honorable Gillis, said, "Hey, uh, Miss Lord mentioned your name and uh, thought it'd be a good idea if you would be the deputy to the Joint Acquisition Task Force." So. I think what happened was when they established the JADF and Ms. Cummings was designated as the director, they looked around and said, we need someone else that could help her and assist her and bring perhaps some competencies that were a little different than the ones she had. So they looked to the sustainment side of uh, ASD. And uh, since I was available, they thought that I'd be a good fit. So that's pretty much how it came about. Now, what were you doing specifically prior to this call going out? What were you doing for the department? Well, so as the as the DASD for material readiness, I ensure that our organic industrial base is able to support our weapon system sustainment. So ensuring that all of our arsenals, all of our depots, our logistics centers and fleet readiness centers, shipyards can perform the work necessary to maintain our fielded forces. So that's principally my job day to day. And as part of COVID, just like the defense industrial base was hit by a reduction in workforce and that impacted readiness in in response to ensuring that they're producing parts and spares and material, I was focusing on that as part of my job. This is a $90 billion maintenance program that you oversee? Nine, yes, approximately $90 billion with hundreds of ships and thousands of aircraft and uh, wheeled vehicles, uh, all the systems that support the, the different services to support the, the joint warfighter. Yeah, the mind boggles a little bit just thinking about it. Now, in terms of like a budget that you were overseeing, was that coronavirus, did it have the effect of suddenly increasing what you were overseeing or is it just a different 
measure? Well, the concern was that, you know, uh, the impact of the workforce in uh, production. So uh, all of all of the uh, services, organic capabilities are on a production schedule to meet warfighter requirements. So uh, as you can imagine, that was interrupted when individuals, since we have a, I'll say, a senior mature workforce, uh, we had to put in measures to protect them. And many of them used uh, administrative safety leave. So production dropped initially. And then we had to figure out how do we work under these conditions, you know, with uh, social distancing and proper protection. So it took a while to get back to normal operations to recover, but it'll have some impact moving forward as we have to restore the, the hours lost in production. So if I'm understanding correctly, we could liken this to how an individual business has been impacted by coronavirus and has to regain their footing and the influence on the economy as a whole. Am I tracking with you? Maybe you could amplify that a little bit for me. No, absolutely. It's very similar. So just like those businesses were impacted, and we as a department actually worked to ensure that they had some cash infusion. Um, The government provided stimulus to help them absorb some of those cash flow losses. The organic industrial base had those same concerns. So if your workforce is affected and now what on a normal operation is maybe 5% of your workforce is out at any given time, but maybe up to 20% is out. All those lost hours in production have to be compensated for, not only in the future to get back on schedule, but during that time, you have bills to pay, right? You still have overhead costs. You still have payroll. You have energy um You still have contracts that you have to to pay. So that loss uh, has been absorbed in the the organic industrial base. Right now, we're figuring out how to mitigate that. And we've also asked for additional funds to cover that. So very similar in in operations. It's the the organic industrial base is very much a business-like and operates on a schedule and operates on revenue recovery to make sure that we can continue to produce those weapon systems through sustainment. Yeah, so quite a business and management feat on a grand scale. Now, what is the um, HHS's role under normal environments? Uh, you know, as we consider this national stockpile, um, what does that look like in the normal situation? So, so that's a good question. Again, when you talk about HHS, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll scope it in terms of the strategic national stockpile. Obviously, HHS is a large organization. Um, In fact, there's about 500,000 people that make up the activities that are aligned under HHS. So you have, you know, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health. You have the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Both those offices we work primarily with, and I'll get back to those. But then you have, you know, all the centers, the Centers for Disease control and prevention. There's uh, seven different centers. There's Food and Drug Administration and all the agencies that fall under them. Then you have the National Institute uh, Institutes of Health. So it's a big organization. So for us in this COVID response, we were primarily working with um, the Assistant Secretary for Health, ASH, which was Admiral Giroir, and the 
Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, who was Dr. Cadlick. Um, and under Dr. Cadlick is where the strategic national stockpile resides. So that is part of his organization. And his charter, I'll say, his role day to day is he's advising on matters related to public health emergencies and bioterrorism. And really, that's what we were assigned to support. He leads that organization in the prevention and response and recovery from health effects from, you know, natural occurring disasters, man-made disasters, and response to a health emergency. So if you think about that, that's exactly what we were doing with COVID. We're focusing on, on a response to a public health emergency on the scale that we've never seen before. And that, quite frankly, they weren't prepared to respond to because that was really outside of the, the scope of what they were resourced and really established to respond to. Yeah, so the, it's not that the role or the task was so foreign to you. It was really just on such a dramatic scale. Yeah, really, it's it's the scale. So their size... the. And, and again, when you talk about what, what do they do, well, they have an organization called BARTA, BARTA, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development, you know, and that's what they focus on, research and development in biomedical research areas. They have an incident command and control activity, and then they have this thing called the Strategic National Stockpile. And the reality is they were a fairly young organization. They were stood up in 2018. And again, the stockpile was really designed to respond to local, smaller scale, you know, uh, medical emergencies, public health emergencies uh, that were maybe city sized and maybe two events. So you might have had some kind of man-made event like a radiological incident uh, or you had a localized outbreak of some kind of organic event, but nothing on the scale of a national event like we're seeing with COVID. So I think this is why in our introduction, in introducing this discussion, we use the term not just replenish, but restructure the national stockpile. Is that what you're driving at? Right. So I don't think anyone could have imagined a pandemic affecting the nation in the way it did. So again, because the, the likelihood of that w it was so low, but yet it happened. So they were sized for something much different. If you think about FEMA, for example, FEMA has different regions that they cover, but those kind of disasters and that disaster preparedness that they're organized to respond to is, is regional or local. This is not only on a national scale, but again, they were never they were never sized to be able to respond to something like this. If I may, interestingly enough, they had a strategy, and the strategy one of one of the goals of the strategy was having this resilient public health security capacity, which the strategic national stockpile is part of that strategy and their ability to respond and recover from a public health emergency, and then building a regional disaster health response system. So, and, and I use the word regional, that's, that's what they were really building a strategy to do. They hadn't done it yet, but they were really just reaching for a regional approach. And here we have a national level strategy that they have to respond to. 
Right. So that's clearly why they required assistance to rebuild the stockpile. How, as DOD, were we uniquely prepared to provide that assistance? So DOD, as a as a organization, has a lot of capacity in acquisition because of the unique nature of our systems. Right? We have uh, we can contract with companies for commercial systems, and they're responsible for all of the development and manufacture. And we just buy. That's that's a procurement. But when it comes to uh, acquisition. Of, of a weapon system, you have to not only have that procurement expertise, which we have through our contracting, but you also have to have the program management expertise on understanding how to ensure that the requirement is well-defined and that you have the ability to acquire it and sustain it, you know, and all those elements of the support of that particular product are considered and that the supply chain is available to meet your requirements demand over time. So we have those skill sets across the services, and we have a framework on on how we do that kind of work uh, that's well understood and codified. It sounds incredibly complex, especially as you mentioned the supply chain. Were you finding many deficits in the supply chain? I know it's been much publicized that we didn't want to be over-reliant on foreign sources and the need to build domestic sources. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure, and that's really at the heart of why not only were we replenishing but restructuring and that restructuring links to uh, another aspect, which was our, our domestic expansion, uh, expanding domestic sources of manufacturing so that we would have a viable and a healthy supply chain that could be sustained past this pandemic. So those two work together to ensure the medical readiness capability that ASPR uh, and HHS are trying to deliver through this this strategy of having this robust, resilient public health capacity. So, just imagine again. So I'm I'm HHS, and I have a broad uh, organization that can do contracting of commercially available items. The on all these medical items are commercially available. They have a stockpile, but that stockpile is very very small relative to the consumption that occurred because of a national event. And we made some choices as a nation in what kind of price point we would want to accept in buying these things. And that drove a lot of the manufacturer overseas, not only because of the cost to to manufacture, but some of our regulations uh, made it unprofitable for companies to do here. So you have that combination of, of, of conditions, a small stockpile, inventories, even at hospitals and state warehouses, it was small. And then you had this, this incredible surge in demand. And so now you don't have enough to go around. So what do you do? You're, you're, you're competing for the products that are manufactured overseas. So recognizing that those problems, it's a combination of work that has to restructure the stockpile and and then ensure a domestic source of uh, medical material and then replenish and resize that 
strategic national stockpile to have a what I'll call a deeper shelf or a deeper level of inventory. So we were working. We were working a couple lines of effort. One, uh, the uh, responding to meet the the COVID um, immediate crisis and ensure that we're meeting state demand for material. You know, in a declared emergency. You know, in in that particular part of the the response, FEMA was the was the coordinating agency, coordinating across their regions to try to get all this PPE you know, ventilators, drugs, other uh, medical supplies and resources out to the states, out to the hospitals. So that was going on in, in our ability to respond and, and find material and help companies ramp up and surge their production. So that meets the immediate crisis. Uh, while that's going on, we're working to expand domestic manufacturing sources. So uh, this is where our Defense Production Act, Title III investments in these companies was was taking place. HHS also had uh, CARES Act funding, which also allowed us to invest in companies to increase their capacity so that they can produce not only end items like masks, but they could produce the material, the, the melt-blown fiber material that they used to make the masks. Uh, and then also the second and third tier suppliers who provide components that enable these capabilities. For example, your screening and diagnostics testing capabilities, the different vendors who have these different testing devices also have a supply chain that needs to be resilient and robust enough to support that increased demand and and what the current future demand is going to be going forward out of COVID. It's an amazing story. And and then it gets fun with some of the creative anecdotes. We hear about everyone from the MyPillow company to just other unexpected sources of domestic manufacture who were not ever geared up to make things like masks, but now they were doing that or creating ventilators. That's a very interesting part and a very encouraging part of the response just to see here in our country. Yes, yeah, that that's one of the things that I'm probably most proud of is how our nation uh, responded to the the need uh, and the creative ways people were uh, coming together to 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 partner or to shift their uh, production from one product to another. Uh, it shows the resiliency of our manufacturing capability in this country. So that that was a good news story. Now, as we look at an interagency perspective, how would you describe the complexity of that interagency coordination? So, like nothing I'd seen before, and uh, and I've I've been in NATO and had to work with multiple nations, um, kind of on that scale, but uh, uh, this was a uh, a tremendous lesson in civics and interagency collaboration for me as I as I got into deeper into um, understanding HHS on all the uh, agencies that fall under them and working with FEMA and then uh, our other our industrial partners so it uh, it was extremely complex and required really uh, a lot of learning on the part of everybody one of the takeaways that I would call out in this whole experience is that 
you need to have the relationship in place before you need the relationship. So in, in the case of this kind of event, now FEMA has a relationship with our defense logistics agency because the defense logistics agency provides support to FEMA. FEMA has a relationship with the, the DOD through defense support to civil authorities uh, activities that we routinely support. But on the scale that uh, Health and Human Services has been involved, we did not have those relationships established in really knowledge of each other's strengths and lexicon and organization uh, and strategies and capabilities. So tremendous amount of discovery learning was going on to build that knowledge so that we could operate together. So you really went from a different kind of status quo pre-COVID to something rather different. What governance had existed previously and what did you have to create in order to have this response go off properly? Yeah, so again, when this kicked off, the, I'll say one of the the benefits of having an organization like FEMA who is well-versed and proficient in responding to disasters, maybe not, you know, public health emergencies, but certainly they have a framework for responding to disasters because they do this all the time. And that is really how we started. It was, you know, these emergencies were declared in the different states. We used the FEMA structure, uh, management structure, their governance framework, you know, the unified coordination group to make decisions. So using that that existing structure, and that is why, you know, the president had them as a lead coordinating agency in the beginning to, to coordinate the response because the scale was so big. They were the only ones that had the, you know, the different regional connections and processes in place that w- would have enabled the distribution of all the medical uh, supplies and, and material. So that's really how we started with the FEMA organization and the governance that helped us make decisions, you know, the unified coordination group that met on a weekly basis to to make decisions. They had a daily coordination cell with interagency representation that met to coordinate activities. There was a linkage into, they stood up a White House task force, and then there was task force, different task force stood up below that, uh, the supply chain task force being one of them that was part of FEMA. So the series of task force, task forces, plural, and a FEMA, FEMA structure and governance is what got us going. Uh, and then as we in the DOD, you know, uh, we developed the Joint Acquisition Task Force and uh, uh, developed the different uh, org structure to support FEMA, we rolled into that existing governance. Now, when it transitioned to HHS taking the lead and FEMA going back to preparedness for the next disaster, HHS put in place a governance structure to continue to uh, support the state requirements, but also now get after the goal of establishing uh, or replenishing and restructuring the strategic national stockpile. So they put together a steering committee 
that met weekly with membership from the White House Task Force, FEMA. I mentioned ASPR, which was, again, the key organization within HHS because they were the ones who, who drove the requirement because they had the they had the responsibility of having this ability to respond to a, a public health emergency. So they were key in determining the requirements that we needed for the strategic national stockpile. You had DOD on there, you had the Office of Management and Budget, and then you had the Office of Trade and Manufacturing Policy from the White House. So that was the, the committee who was the decision body as we move forward on the lines of effort to replenish and restructure the strategic national stockpile. Yeah, very complex. And about all of it being done remotely, I have to imagine, right? Through phones and video conference, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So uh, people operating under similar um, telework conditions. Um, I will say that was one of the strengths of the JADF. Uh, we were this large virtual organization of hundreds of people, you know, who were members of program offices, you know, in different states. But matrix together, you know, taking advantage of the collaboration tools that are out there, calling in on different telecons, but working independent yet as an organization, we found how effective we could actually be that way, that you don't need to necessarily all be in the room together or geographically in one place. So it wasn't something that was a constraint. And in some cases, it was actually uh, something that aided us because you had the right people available and you could reach out through email, phone call, Skype, uh, and any other, any other tool uh, at any given time. We had people as far as Alaska supporting, you know, contracting and supporting our product leads in, in uh, you know, acquiring different commodities like masks and test devices. Yeah, in so many ways, it's the opposite of a constraint because you don't have the travel downtime and other encumbrances when you're doing it all remotely and you just fall into that rhythm of remote work. Now, if we look at things from an internal DOD perspective, what processes or policies were you heavily relying upon, ones that existed, and which ones did you have to create? So again, this is where the strength of the DOD shines and why, as a federal uh, department, we're just uniquely qualified to step in and help HHS in, in acquisition because we have this framework set up through our acquisition regulations, our organizations, our processes. So again, uh, we were able to take the problem set that was in front of us and say, okay, what what do we have in place already that allows us to respond quickly and meet the requirements to, to procure, to do expansion? We had the tools in the DOD, the Defense Production Act, for example, uh, as a tool that we can use to leverage and invest. We had organizations that could rapidly contract to meet these timelines to, to acquire um, not only procure items, but to to uh, get on contract the investment with the companies that could expand production. So those tools that we had in place and the policies that, again, are well understood by the acquisition community because they're well codified in DOD instructions, service level instructions, federal acquisition regulations, 
all of that allowed people to immediately go to work and be able to to satisfy the requirements as they were identified. How do you see these new processes or policies impacting the DOD in the future? So, well, with the question I think you're asking, so what did we have to do that wasn't maybe uh, in, in place and how did we do that? So, you know, those policy changes are actually new policies to address issues that we'd never run into before. That is what I think you're talking about. So we, we captured those and have codified them, for example. I'll give you an example, one that we came across early on where I don't know if you were following it, but additive manufacturing was something that got a lot of attention early on as a way of rapidly responding because of the lack of capacity that was out there. So we hadn't really dealt with using additive manufacturing as a means to acquire or procure uh, equipment. And in the case of the organic industrial base, you had folks just really wanting to do the right thing and rapidly respond, but we really had no policy to address how we were going to we were going to use organic manufacturing. So we did put together a, a policy memo that Ms. Lord signed out to address how we would do that through the Defense Logistics Agency uh, and then what what existing policy we would link to to make sure that we're not manufacturing using additive just because we can do it, but yet at a cost that is not affordable. So that policy was put in place and it's going to be codified in the next update of their publication. So that's an example where nothing existed. And interestingly enough, the fact that we codified that, we're going to use that in not only for medical devices, but how do we use additive to produce other military parts to repair our weapon systems. We have, it's, it's really the same process, policy that we came up with to other things as far as is when do we use additive and when do we use other manufacturing? And then when do we just go to the commercial sector and have them make it? The other thing I'll say is that, you know, as part of how we codified the policies and the org structure that would work, the JADFS put together a playbook, which really is the, the lessons learned codified in what we found were the best practices that we put in place so that if we do this again, you know, we already have plowed the ground, so to speak, and, and have the best path forward. Transitioning the JADF to an enduring organization under the rapid acquisition cell so that, again, we have the relationships in place before we need them. We have the policies codified. We have the processes in place. And we sustain that, maybe not at the scale we're at with we were at with the JADF, but that we retain all that expertise and knowledge so that if we have to do this again, an existing organization is ready to go that can be expanded to respond to something on a national scale. So clearly the DOD, the interagency are much better positioned if, God forbid, we're facing another pandemic or crisis like this. What would you say you are most proud of in light of all of this? Wow. So uh, proud of a lot of things. I think I mentioned earlier, you know, proud of how, you know, in times of crisis, really the nation responded. Our private sector companies who, again, maybe weren't manufacturing on the scale they were prior or even manufacturing that product line were able to rapidly pivot to respond. I'm 
immensely proud of our men and women in the DOD across all the services and and OSD who, again, came together in a virtual way, you know, as an organization we called the JADF, who all rolled up their sleeves and put in the hours necessary uh, to respond quickly uh, to whatever the nation was asking us. I'm proud of how we took that energy and put it to good use and then how we codified that so that we can do it again. It's repeatable. And that's just, just, it's incredible to see how quickly we were able to do that, you know, looking back on it. You know, we talk a lot about how the nation came together in, in World War II to manufacture, but what we did some incredible complex manufacture in a matter of months. Uh, and I'll use ventilators as an example. You know, we got to over 100,000 ventilators in just over 110 days. Uh, you think how quick from, you know, flash to bang. Uh, and that is the, the companies coming together to produce some and our ability, you know, to get those contracts awarded and then the distribution of those and now the oversight as we move forward. That's an incredible success story. It's really stunning. I understand some of these automotive companies had certain plants shuttered, mm -hmm. and then the call came, and they're creating ventilators. And that's not simplistic equipment to build, but suddenly you had them mobilized and producing. It's absolutely amazing. Right. So and it just shows the ability for these companies to, again, be able to pivot they have the expertise in electronics and assembly, and they produce motors that support environmental control systems. So they were able to take all that expertise they have. And in some cases, some of these OEMs had, had you know, product lines, you know, on a very small scale, grant you, who, who made filters, who made distribution systems, pumps, and sensors and controls, and they were able to come together and produce ventilators in a, in a rapid amount of time, you know, on a scale that they just weren't, you know, ever sized to do. Amazing adaptivity. Final question, who or what was most integral to your success? Who or what did you rely upon the most? Wow. So, um, I, I would have to give a lot of credit to our product leads, both our civilian product leads and military, who are, again, members who, of the different program offices across the services, who in some cases really, you know, again, they weren't managing medical devices. These were, you know, individuals who may have been managing ship systems, right, for the Navy, yet raise their hand to be part of this organization and learn learn everything they needed to know about N95 respirators and then be able to communicate with companies, with the contracting activities to get companies on contract to produce. It's just amazing how they're able to respond and, and perform. That just demonstrates to me the professionalism of our acquisition workforce and really the skill and work ethic of our people. So I think, you know, I'd have to say the product leads. I'd also have to say 
really Miss Lord's leadership and advocacy for everything we did, you know, her ability to communicate with Congress, other senior leaders in the administration, the goodness that we were doing, uh, and then Miss Cummings' ability to pull together a team and in a collaborative way, get the best out of each of the services, you know, find those skills and, and competencies that they had that would best satisfy a requirement and then bring them on into into the the solution again that was impressive and really key to the success of the JADF. it sounds like the leadership and the workforce just all came together in a wonderful coordination with pretty astounding results my guest has been steve morani principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for logistics steve thank you so much for your time today Again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been an experience, and uh, I'm glad I was able to share a little bit of the uh, of the journey that we took to help support the nation respond to this crisis. So thanks again, Anthony. It's such an important story. Thank you for helping tell it with us today. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.